0: Uh, we've been looking at the life of Elijah, which I kind of call the dude of the Old Testament. He was a heavyweight, significant, a man whom others feared. And and primarily Elijah's role, Moses brought the law, and hugely important in the Old Testament, but Elijah is alongside of him as the one who brought judgment on the nation of Israel for the, their idolatry. And Moses and Elijah uh, keep recurring with similarities through their lives, and it normally involves mountaintops um, we don't have time to go into that, but there's this huge trail in which they parallel each other's lives in significant ways. But Elijah's ministry, unlike Moses, who brought the law, was to call out the nation of Israel for their idolatry. And it's, it's tempting for us today to say, well, we just don't have idols. That's, that's not us. I mean, we don't, we don't have towers and, and, and rocks and stone gods that we worship. And, and so, we can kind of think it doesn't apply to us or that we as Christians don't have that problem. But I want to tell you, I think idolatry is not only alive and well, but it is more subtle than ever before. There's a guy named Christian Smith, what a great name, um, who wrote a book called Soul Searching a number of years ago, and it's a result of interviews that he and his team did with 3,000 American adolescents. They have interviewed three thousand American adolescents about the nature of their faith, and he came to the conclusion that American adolescents don't believe in biblical Christianity. Instead, they believe in something that he coined as moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And as he summed them up, these were the traits that he felt like expressed what it means. First, that there is a God who exists and he created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. There's a God out there. He kind of keeps an eye on us. Second, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. He kind of wants morality, right? That's the moralistic Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, right? I said in the first service, you know, there's a narrow band that appreciates that. Some are too old, some are too young, but some of us feel really good about ourselves because we get the joke. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. He's on a, you know, need-to-know basis. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Uh, Christianity, in other words, them is being basically good so that I can feel good and, and when I need help, there's a God out there who doesn't interfere, but he's available. May I suggest to you that's not just a disorder among American adolescents. That is the God of American culture. And in many ways, it's the God in the American church. Because so much of what we've become dedicated to is self-help you know, a Christian diet, Christian exercise program, you know, a Christian way to vote, a Christian way to do this, a Christian way. In other words, we've come into seeing Christianity as a means to which we can make ourselves comfortable and happy and feel good about ourselves. And I'm all for comfort and happiness and feeling good about oneself. But that's not the goal of Christianity. Today, We're going to finish up on the life of Elijah. Next week, we will look about what Scripture says about Elijah in the future. And this will either be your least favorite or most favorite sermon in the series. Some of you will say, exactly, that's what I understand. And some of you say, well, I just don't like that at all. Call 1-800-FIRE-ANDY, okay? Turn, if you will, to 1 Kings. No, 1 Kings. Let's start in 1 Kings. I want to see the last episode um, uh, in 1 Kings, and and we have literally gone through every episode in Elijah's life. It's amazing how little he's in Scripture and yet how towering a figure he is. Um, So, 1 Kings chapter 21. You remember that uh, Ahab is the king, and Scripture says he's the worst king ever. And he's married to Jezebel, who's the worst queen ever. And, and the story picks up in chapter 21 that there is a guy named Naboth, and he has farmland. And, and uh, Ahab goes to him and says, I want to buy it. And, and Naboth says, No, it's not for sale. So Ahab, being a whiny little wimp, goes home to Mama and says, he won't sell it to me. And she says, Well, that's fine. We'll just kill him. And they do, because that's who Jezebel is. And the story picks up in verse 17. 1 Kings 21, 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. And say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Well, that's just not nice. Right? Right? It's an incredibly harsh passage, but but see, Ahab thought because he was king, he could do anything. One of the things that's interesting with power is when power sees itself as accountable to no one, then it incessantly becomes unfettered and evil. And Ahab said to Elijah, "So you found me, my enemy." I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to the evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he says, I, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'll wipe out your descendants and cut off uh, from Ahab uh, every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and, and that of Basha, son of Abijah, because you have aroused my anger, and I have caused Israel to sin, and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord said, dogs will devour Jezebel at the wall of Jezreel. So dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those. This is just not pleasant at all. Verse 25, therefore, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner, by going after idols like the Amorites who drove the Lord drove out before the Israel. Ah, Ahab is kind of the Hitler of the Old Testament. In my interactions with people, i found, I've got this little, we thank God for Hitler because compared to Hitler, we all look good, right? I mean, isn't it great that we have Hitler? So that we can say, well, I'm not as bad as other people. And in the Old Testament, I'm not as bad as Ahab. Um, So, verse 27 When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in the sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself. I won't bring disaster on it this day, but I will bring it on his house in the day of his son. That little sentence is shocking. Because when you think of the reign of Elijah, the prophecy of Elijah, you think of judgment of sin always. But did you notice God's grace? It it said Ahab was the worst of all time. But when he repented, God extended grace. This is going to be uncomfortable because I, I want to revolutionize your idea of the gospel. Most of us get the idea of grace. God is nice. God is good. God, is, God is, gives us things we don't deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. We like all of that. That's comfortable to us, right? But what we have neglected today is the starting point, which is the character of God. Because God's grace means nothing if He's not righteous and all-judging. See, the reason his grace is so astounding is because Ahab is so incredibly bad. But that makes God's forgiveness that much greater, right? We have dumbed down God's righteousness to making him a therapeutic, moralistic, deistic God so that his grace is kind of expected. You know, I mean, I make mistakes, but I'm not near as bad as Hitler. I'm not even as bad as some of you, right? Right? And therefore, I, I don't have to be that appreciative because, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm okay, right? Uh, people will read the Old Testament and say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's just mean. No, it's the same God. But the Old Testament establishes the character of God so that we see the, the completeness of His justice and His integrity and His righteousness. Uh, we like to make God manageable, which means, you know, good and moralistic and deistic and you know, but therapeutic and, and and meaning well. But the God of Scripture is the all-sovereign creator God who brings judgment on any evil. The God of integrity that when he said to Our forefathers, if if you do this, you will surely die. He meant it. See, we have have made God this slump-shouldered, well-meaning old grandfather who always looks the other way when we mess up. But what that means is that Jesus is simply a nice addition to the story. Scripturally, the God of Scripture brings judgment on all sin. Did you hear me? The God of Scripture brings judgment on all sin. The amazing thing is he paid the price of that judgment with his own son. He doesn't look the other way. He doesn't say, you poor, poor thing. He doesn't say, well, I understand. Your mother wasn't nice to you. You couldn't help yourself. Instead, he declares what his righteousness demands, and then he personally pays the price. By making God a wimp, we've made his gospel therapy. By making God a wimp, We've made his gospel therapy, which, by the way, means that all he asks of me is to be pretty good and nice, right? But that's not the God of Scripture. And, and, and if you don't understand who the God of Scripture is, then, then you don't understand who we are, miraculously made in his image, but fallen and desperately in need of his grace which means we don't understand the incredible miracle that is his mercy and love is demonstrated by Jesus taking all the pain and all the responsibility and all the judgment for our sinfulness and demonstrating his victory over that by his resurrection. If, If we don't get the first part, then the second part isn't worth much. And Elijah... Is a remarkable example of that because he's constantly bringing fire down on people, bringing judgment on people. But as soon as the worst guy in the story repents, he experiences mercy. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Kings Ahab dies. And Moab rebels against Israel, and Ahaziah has fallen through the lattice of his upper room. Ahaziah is Ahab's son who becomes king and who will experience the judgment that God has predicted through Elijah. And he injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the messenger of the Lord, there's a little play on words. Angel is the same word as messenger. So he sends messengers and then God sends a messenger to the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to consult above the God of Ekron? And therefore, this is what the Lord says. You won't leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. Ahaziah, the son, is taken over, he falls through a roof, he hurts himself, and he, he, unlike Ahab, who was at least aware of the God of Israel, the God of Israel is no longer important. See, spiritual degradation doesn't stay static. You go further, you add gods, and then ultimately you eliminate the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. So he sends messengers, go talk to Beelzebub. Now, most of us don't know Hebrew well enough to know what this is, what's going on here. Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. That's, that's, that's where the book title came from. Probably his name was not Beelzebub. It was actually Beelzebul, which means Baal or Lord the Prince. But the Jews just liked to kind of stick it between your ribs, so they just changed the letter and made it Lord of the Flies. In all, of the, in all of the Old Testament. So the, the king sends messengers out. And he says, go consult with my idolatrous God and see if I'll get healed. And the Lord sends a messenger to Elijah and Elijah says, you go tell the king, Israel has no God. Israel has no God. And because you have sought after this idolatrous God, you will die. It's an astounding passage. Verse 5, when the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why did you come back? And they said, a man came to meet us. And he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending men to consult bells above the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. So the king said, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they said, well, he's this hairy guy, literally, uh, a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> and then they said to, he, then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. And the captain went to Elijah who was sitting on the top of the hill. By the way, this is free. I'm not going to charge you for this. If you ever read the B.C. Con, uh, comics, all kinds of things in the B.C. comics are taken as a mockery of the story. Not a mockery, but playing off of Scripture. So who's the enemy? A snake. And who's always beating the snake on the head? The woman, not accidental. And, and you remember how there's always the prophet sitting on top of the hill? It's from this. It's from this. So Elijah's sitting on top of the hill and the 50 men with the captain come to him and say, uh, come down, man of God, come down. And Elijah, verse 10, answered the captain, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Well, isn't that nice? Um, uh, Verse 11, so they sent another 50 men. It says, uh, I'm skipping on ahead, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I'm a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And then fire of God fell from heaven and consumed them and his 50 men. Uh, by the way, in Luke chapter nine, when the disciples experience rejection by the villagers, and they say, "Jesus, why don't we send fire down from heaven?" That's what they're talking about right here. It worked for Elijah. That'd be cool, right? What kind of God does that? Well, help me first. Let me help you first by explaining. We look at verse thirteen. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men, and the third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. A man of God, have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen down from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but please have respect for my life. Don't you know there were a lot of volunteers for this mission? Um, the clue about what happened in the first two is in verse 15. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, don't be afraid of him. The first two were sent to kill him. The first two were sent to kill him. He brought judgment on them. The third one was sent in humility, recognizing the power of God, and there was no threat to him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king, and he told the king, this is what the Lord said. Is it because there's no God in Israel for you to consult that you sent messengers to consult the Lord of the flies, the God of Ekron?" Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you're lying on. You'll certainly die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. So he had no son, and a new king came up, just as God had told Elijah. Are you comfortable with the God who does this? Are you comfortable with the God who brings judgment? and death uh, we, we have substituted the God of scripture with this therapeutic moralistic deistic God who doesn't interfere with people's lives they're going to get their child for the infant dedication I'm just <laughs> letting everybody know see you Beth Bye, Q. we'll all be here waiting for you is it great to be a family church you know Actually, Beth didn't like what I said, so she and Quentin left, but they'll be better. Um are, are, you, are you comfortable with a God who judges? May I suggest to you, if you're not, it's because you're comfortable with evil. See, we don't see judgment of evil as offensive because we don't see evil as offensive. Now, we'll acknowledge Hitler. Thank God for Hitler. But our evil, our betrayal of friendships, our uh, lack of loyalty to people that love us, our lack of grace, our, our, our criticism of others for doing the very same things we do, all of those things that we've become accustomed to, we're accustomed to them. So why would God be so mean, right? You cannot possibly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ if if you have have made evil just an illness and not death. And if you have made God just a therapist and not the sovereign. But when God is the God of the Bible, which means he created everything, he has a sovereign right to declare what is good and normal and and righteous. And when he has a sovereign right to declare judgment on all evil because it's inconsistent with who he is. If if we have so eradicated that God from the gospel, then Jesus' death is just a nice story that makes us feel better about ourselves. But if our sinfulness, our disobedience, our brokenness is foul, And capable of destroying even the people that are closest to us and those that we love. If my brokenness is in its essence no no different from that of Hitler's. And if God's righteousness is not so distinct from that as to demand that he bring justice upon it. Just as we bring justice, we call for justice with inequities that are offensive to us. then then we will not see Jesus' death for us as anything but a nice story that is a good example. But see, in Scripture, there is one God who will tolerate no other gods and who has declared what is good and right. And because He loves us, He has declared that's, that's His will for all of us. But we have become incapable of living that out perfectly. And in fact, we don't even live up to the very standards to which we hold others. And if we don't understand that his justice and righteousness gave him the right and even, if I can say it, the responsibility to bring judgment upon it, then we don't get the gospel. God does not compromise his goodness the way politicians do. God does not compromise his righteousness the way parents do. God doesn't neutralize his perfection into mediocrity the way you and I do. Instead, God declared that there would be absolute and complete justice and declared that a price would be paid for every sin ever committed. But the gospel is, He gave his son to pay that price. He didn't compromise the price. He gave his son to pay the price. And he declared from eternity, I will give you that gift of my righteousness in my eyes if you will but embrace, if you will receive what my son has done. But see, what we too often do is we we make God therapeutic, we make sin slightly uncomfortable, and therefore Jesus' death is just a nice suggestion. And then we wonder why we Christians have so little impact and why our lives fall so short of what God expected. God brings judgment because his his righteousness demands it. Chapter 2, verse 1, very quickly, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, like you do, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. They get to Bethel, and then Elisha says, Elijah says, well, I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to go to Jericho. And Elisha says, well, I'm going with you to Jericho. They get to Jericho and Elijah says, well, I'm going to go to the Jordan. And Elisha says, well, I'm going to the Jordan. What we don't notice because we're not good on geography is, is Elijah is retracing the steps of the nation of Israel. Because one of the things that, that Elijah wants to see is that he mirrors God's will for the nation of Israel. He, and then he will ultimately part the waters of the Jordan just as God parted the, the waters in the Red Sea for the nation of Israel. There's a story here. Okay. Verse seven: Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. And Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. And the water divided right and left, and they crossed over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And he says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Probably he's referring to Deuteronomy 21, 17, where the firstborn gets a double portion of the inheritance. Probably what he's saying, of all the prophets who have followed you, let me be like your firstborn. Let me fulfill that role. And Elijah says, that's a tough thing, but if you're there when I go on the whirlwind, you'll get it. So verse 11, as they were walking and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, my father and my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. And he picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. See, Elijah said, I'm the only one. There's nobody else that cares. And God's answer was, no, you'll you'll anoint Elisha and he will follow in your role. And once you understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, his justice, his judgment, but also his mercy and grace, the next thing you do is you put the mantle of service on for yourself. You, you take on the, the privilege of living out the gospel in gratitude for all that he's done for you. And all of us has a mantle. In the New Testament, it's called spiritual gift. It's supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit, just as, as the mantle of the prophet was a supernatural empowerment on Elisha. He wasn't capable of splitting the Jordan wide open. It was the, the power of God is displayed in the mantle that allowed. And you and I aren't capable of doing anything significant for God. It is the power of the Spirit who does that. But, but having embraced the gospel and experienced the power of God in his forgiveness and mercy, we then have the opportunity to be used by him by the power of the Spirit to do what he's called us to do. But don't get the order switched. We don't experience the gospel because of all the good we did. That's the lie. We experience the gospel because a righteous God has poured out his wrath for the evil of the world on his only son. And we experience his righteousness when we embrace his son. And and service is, is merely an outgrowth of gratitude for that by the power of his spirit. Don't dumb down the gospel. Don't buy into a therapeutic, moralistic deism, where, where God just wants us to feel good about ourselves and to be nice. And he'll step in when there's a problem that's not the God of Scripture, that's not the God who created the universe, and quite frankly, that's not the God any of us desire. Because the more you see the majesty of God, the beauty of His perfections, the unlimited nature of His power and His righteousness and His justice, the more his grace and mercy and forgiveness ignites your very soul. Please pray with me. Father, forgive us that we've dumbed down your gospel. We've made it powerless and candidly meaningless. Thank you that your standards are much higher than ours. They are perfection, but that your, your solution is beyond our imagination. You exerted your justice on your own son. Lord, give us a gratitude that readily takes on the mantle of service, not to earn your blessing, but to celebrate your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.